You know, it's banal to say these are such complex times. These are such complex times. One of the best things that happened yesterday was I got an email from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is a lovely place down in San Jose. It um, has a very um, inclusive spirituality. They, uh, they teach from all the spiritual traditions. They have a lovely bookstore. They have a lovely chapel. Uh, I taught for them uh, sometime last fall, and uh, I enjoyed my relationship with them very much. They have a lovely newsletter, which you can get by phoning them. Um, and yesterday I got an email from them saying, um, we hope that you will think about coming back and teaching for us an afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, in the fall of, or the winter of this year. You pick a day. And uh, apart from the fact that I liked them so much, and I thought they were, uh, that the Dharma they taught was really wonderful, it was like an uplift in the day to say, think about what you're going to do next fall or next winter. All of a sudden, in the middle of the day, it reminded me that there's such a thing as next fall. And it was, well, you got it. I don't have to explain it to you. That all of a sudden, when you think, oh, yeah, there's going to be a next fall, like, one of the things that keeps me frightened or keeps returning me into states of fear is what's it going to be like next fall. But there'll be a next fall, and it will be different, and something will have made it different. I actually think we will have made it different. Um, that um, There are things that I think about when I start to feel overwhelmed and uh, in jeopardy of becoming hopeless. That's, that's maybe a good way to think of it. I think about uh, one of my, um, one of the challenges that I see is facing me, I think all of us, is for me not to become totally outraged and totally angry and totally upset. Um, I wish I were actually better at it than I am, but I think of it as my practice all the time. And I'm, doing all right with it. And the, uh, and the opposite, I, I was very inspired by reading um, a chapter of Donald Rothberg's book that he's working on now, on equanimity. I know you'll be happy to know Donald will come back and teach again in May one morning here. But he's done a lovely job talking about equanimity. Because we talked a little bit earlier this morning about how we're going to keep our minds balanced and Balance is a good word for equanimity. It doesn't mean tranquil. It means balanced. It means able to look at what's happening and somehow maintain some amount of balance in the face of it. And he talked about the near enemy of equanimity. And in the standard uh, Buddhist teaching about the Brahma Viharas, about the sublime states of mind, each of the sublime states of uh, uh friendliness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity has one near enemy. The near enemy of friendliness is attachment, and the near enemy of compassion is pity, and the near enemy of exuberance, of, uh, uh, of joy, is exuberance that clouds the mind. And the near enemy of uh, equanimity is often uh, suggested to be indifference. But Donald has eight near enemies of equanimity, <laughs> and they're very good. So I want to read you this, see if you 
recognize any of these near enemies in your experience these days. Fear, escapism, denial, delusion, complacency, resignation, acquiescence, numbness, and even moral insensitivity. I thought about the moral insensitivity a lot. I uh, stopped by my gym yesterday on my way down from where I live in northern Sonoma County to Marin. And um, I, I don't watch television at all at home. But in the gym, in their aerobics section, they've got three enormous televisions up in front. And uh, so, of course, I don't have to listen to them, but I said, okay, I'm going to see what people are listening to here. And all of a sudden, as I'm listening and watching this continuous coverage, there's something very weird about walking on a treadmill and seeing a war in real time. It's a really moral insensitivity. I look around, people riding their bikes and watching people shoot each other. And I think, we should get off the bikes. We should be kneeling in prayer. We should be crying. We should be doing something. We should not be walking on treadmills. This is bizarre. And here I am, of course, walking on my treadmill. There's something very strange. I, I worry about that insensitivity in terms of the... I hadn't actually seen... Uh, TV coverage, uh, and I realized that when they cut for a commercial and they come back, uh, it's like returning to the coverage of the war, and there's music behind it. And I realized that, uh, I, again, not without dismay, tremendous, that it's, in a sense, it's, it's um, reality TV, the movie. So this is really where I want us to start with. I want to tell you about the demonstration last week, the, the prayer demonstration that uh, I was part of. Susan was there. Was anyone else there Friday morning? Hmm. Thank you. David, I saw you there. Um, I want to tell you about it. But I want to say something first as a kind of a prelude to everything that I'm saying today or said next week or will say next week. I really want to say that I don't really want to be political. I think it's inappropriate for me to be partisan, not only because Spirit Rock is uh, a church organization, it's not supposed to sponsor political views, but uh, because this is a very serious question. It came up, it's part of the uh, homework for the dedicated practitioners uh, Program. You know, there are people in a two-year study program who are about to go to Yucca Valley for the third of five retreats over two years, and they do homework every month. And um, This is the homework for April. And the homework uh, reflecting on uh, uh, Dharma in the world, and particularly about the world situation now, says, um, what do you think about... Uh, the Buddha's views about war, and give certain references, which I'll tell you about. You know, the Buddha did not categorically oppose war. It's a kind of a surprise. Uh, I, I somewhat hoped he would. You know, I, I think it's a, I, I think it's one of the things that are generally um, decided upon myths about that uh, 
Buddhism being uh, uh, such a dedication to the compassionate response of the heart that people imagine that, oh, it couldn't possibly sanction a war. But actually, that's not true. Uh, the Buddha lived in a time of kings. His friends were kings. Didn't particularly question the social order. Um, uh, movements like the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in our time are actually modern movements that have taken uh, a context of the Buddha's teaching about what is the morally correct response to a situation and moved it out into what is a contemporary understanding from their point of view of a morally uh, appropriate response in the, in the light of those teachings. And I want to say to you, from the point of view of all of the spiritual traditions that I know and that were present on Friday, that is the fundamental construct of all religious teachings, that life is sacred and precious, that killing is wrong. There isn't a religious teaching that says otherwise. So people were asked to reflect for their homework about what do you think about what the Buddha said? He doesn't say that if you look up in, in the suttas, as I did, about what did the Buddha say about war, it's ambiguous. Well, I'll tell you what he said in a minute, but it didn't say don't do it. And then I have a question that said, uh, various people in the Sangha have reported feeling judged because they were, were or are supportive of the war in either Afghanistan or Iraq. Do you think it's possible to be a sincere Buddhist or a sincere Sangha member and still support a war? So I thought about it a lot. Is it possible to engage in the world of politics without holding on to fixed views and opinions? Are you able to continue to feel loving kindness towards someone with whom you have a different view? Uh, what do you value more highly? Now, this is such a prejudiced question. <laughs> I didn't write this question. Your view or your feeling of loving kindness. Now, that's such a setup, really. Huh? <laughs> uh, but well, I'm going to say, yeah, my view is more important than returning to my loving heart. Forget it. I mean, this is such a setup. Anyway, I hope the person who wrote that question isn't here. I'll be embarrassed. But that is a not fair leading question. Having said all that, different people have different opinions about what ultimately this fall or the fall after it or ten falls from now will contribute to the well-being and health of this planet. And really, I don't know. I think it is a very complicated question. It's not completely easy. I think it's way more complex than the superficial uh, kinds of um, questions that people address now, like what has to be done now. One of the things that the Buddha did say, which I thought after all of my study on this for today, was the most valuable thing was that unwise people talk about a war in terms of its results and wise people talk about a war in terms of its causes. That, I thought, was a very valuable thing to say. That if in the end, this fall or next fall or some other time, we find ourselves really reflecting in a careful way about what caused this so that it couldn't happen again, but there wasn't one cause. There isn't one cause. 
or the cause that I'd like to decide for myself, or the cause that I keep trying to hold in the middle of my in the middle of my understanding is that what causes it is ignorance in every way that it manifests itself in greed and hatred and delusion in um, in all of the ways in which we draw differentiations between ourselves and other people on on it, that, that we do it with uh, classism nationalism racism um, gender homophobia sexual preference and all the ways that it it manifests in the world we say that person is not like me and I can be mad at them and I can have a war with them their life is not as precious as mine it is I, I thought I'd start somewhere else, but I guess I'll start here. Who here reads the New York Times? Other than that, I'm going to, I'm sorry to show you this picture and I'm glad to show you this picture. I'm glad it's a horrible picture. Um, and, uh, the moment after I saw it, this is front page of last Sunday's New York Times, um, I thought to myself, do you remember that there was a picture during the whole Vietnam struggle? that many people say this picture ended the struggle when it ended. There's a picture of a girl running down the street, naked, being napalm. But it was well into that whole war. And here, early on, in the first two weeks of the war, is a picture of a Marine doctor sitting on the ground, and behind him, war is continuing. People are waging the war behind him. And in his arms, the little girl, she looks like my three-year-old granddaughter. She looks three years old. Little dark-haired girl curled up in his arms. And it says, a Marine doctor held an Iraqi girl yesterday after her mother was killed by crossfire on the front line near Rifa, Afghanistan, uh, American officials said. How will anyone explain to this child that the United States, in order to protect her from Saddam Hussein, brought a war to Iraq in which her mother was caught in the crossfire? Regardless of which side fired the shot, she is motherless for the rest of her life. Who will explain it to the Marine doctor who is holding her in his arms? Who will explain it to the American men and women in the background, their lives also endangered, carrying on at the risk of their lives in a cause which daily must seem less credible. And who will explain it to us? It's incredible to look at this picture. Can you imagine? I thought, looked at it, I thought this child looks like my grandchild. I thought about, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings, boundlessly open our hearts. That's a line from the end of the Metta Sutta. I thought about this marine doctor. I thought about how is he going to live the rest of his life and think about this little girl. Yeah. You know, this is not a discussion about whether or not who made what mistake when. You know? I've really been thinking about how easy it is to assign blame if only this hadn't happened, 
if only the election, if only that, if only the other, if only 10 years ago, if only 20 years ago, if only this, if only that. But if only never happens. If only, is only hindsight. If only, if only never happens. What happened, happened. I, I, the question about can you be a sincere practitioner of Dharma in any religious tradition and be a Republican or be a Democrat or be in anything? I didn't be in anything. I have different views. I have people in my family with different views about economics, different views about the future of globalism or the world or whatever. And I don't know. They might be right that the world will be better if it evolves that way. But I wonder if we couldn't, as sincere practice, practitioners of Dharma, agree that war is not good for children and other living things. Do you remember in the 60s we wore things? I've been looking for mine. I kept it for years and years, and now I can't find it. I think I maybe I hoped I wouldn't need it again. But I had one of those nice medallions that said, war is not good for children or other living things. It's not. It's not good for this marine to have been a part of this and have to remember it his whole life. It's not good for those young people behind there. I actually think it makes you different to come home. And I think, Shelley, yeah. I am very much, I am very touched. I read an article the other day about the, uh, like the doctors in Afghanistan, the, the people part of Doctors Without Borders, the people who are part of the Red Cross, people who are part of Save the Children, the people who are running out on battlefields with white flags and picking up the casualties of war and taking them somewhere regardless of what side they're on. We've been reading that here for years. We've been reading about heart and liver and lung transplants in Hadassah Hospital after suicide bombings, where pieces of Palestinians go into Jews and people and parts of Israelis go into Palestinians. And on the level of life, it does not matter. And I think to myself, it is so completely incredible that in a world where we can do heart and lung and liver transplants, we have not figured out how to change our hearts and, and talk to each other. I, it's unbelievable to me that we can send people to the moon and use billions of dollars. You know, it would cost $17 billion to end world hunger. And I read a program from some researcher who figured it out. $17 billion to end world hunger. The amount of billions of dollars in armaments to destroy people and a culture and cities is incredible that we should be doing this. But you know, here's the other piece of it that I feel so buoyed up about. I think that without being partisan and without blaming, which is a possibility, I don't think it's the current administration that has the whole blame of this or the administration before it, or the administration before it. I actually think it's greed, hatred, and delusion, ignorance fundamentally, 
I think it's that somehow something has happened that we have maybe as a whole culture forgotten about the sanctity of life. I don't know why. I don't know why. But we're able, and I among them, to go to a gym and walk on a treadmill and watch people get killed in real time in front of me. Something is very peculiar about that. And I, I really fault myself along with anybody that not everybody else in the gym should get off and cry. I should get off and cry. Maybe not be in the gym to begin with or be doing something else to begin with. I think the only thing I can be doing is saying, let's not blame anyone. Let's just stop. One of the things that was true about... Um, Oh, here, let me tell you a more hopeful thing first, and then I'll tell you about the... It was very hopeful to go to that rally on Friday. But um, some of you probably know. People have been saying, you know, when I go to one of these peace rallies, I see all the same folks that I marched with in 91, I see the people that I marched with in the 60s, and I see the people that I marched with... You know, depending on how old you are, you march in various things. So I'll tell you an old story. When in, 40 years ago, when I moved to Marin County, a little bit more than 40 years ago, I joined the Marin County um, chapter of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And I was 26 years old, and the average age of the people in that Marin chapter were about 86. They were old. And they were very happy to have me join. Uh, met down the street from where I lived, Martha Brenner was one of the charter members of it. Martha is long gone. They were staunch old women. They were great. And uh, they were very happy that I was there. I'm sure I represented for them some uh, uh, some piece of the future. And I really didn't get that at the time. I get it now. So when I show up somewhere, I am doing it on behalf of Martha and those other old women. And consciously. Uh, and they, uh, after a while, after some meetings, and I've been part of that group for a while, they said, let's get some more people to join because they're too old here. They're dying out. Get young people. You invite young people. We'll invite young people. We'll have a tea. And so, okay. So we had a tea, and a lot of younger women came. And they had a program. They said, okay, and they're going to tell the history of the Women's International League was founded by Jane Addams, who founded Hull House. It has social work as its roots, you know. And they started to read from the history that they had prepared. And they said, well, and here's some old woman reading. In 1918, we wrote this letter to the president. Dear President Wilson, we think it would be a very good idea if this country would disarm. And I thought, oh, they shouldn't be reading this, you know, because... It's going to look like 40 years of nothing happened. We're back, except that the guns got bigger and the disarming would be disarming of bigger stuff. And people will be demoralized. They won't join. And I feel I was completely wrong in that thought, that something did happen, that they happened, uh, the Vietnam protests happened, the civil rights movement happened, the women's movement happened, all of the liberation movements that began to need to be, that we began to see hadn't happened yet, started to happen. Things that we now take for granted happened. And I think that those women are invisibly part. They are the mothers or the grandmothers or the down the hill neighbors of the people that made that happen. Just as when we show up in marches now, not for this government or another government, 
Do you know what? There were people who got arrested with us on Friday who were not clergy. There were 83 people arrested and uh, I don't know, maybe 25 clergy, I suppose. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, in the holding room where we were, uh, Susan and myself and 35 other people, we were in two separate rooms being held. We went around the room and many people said, I heard about this uh, on TV this morning that it was going to happen and I came because I wanted to protest and I didn't want to protest with any of the protests that were happening that were political or polemic or uh, certainly not destructive and I heard that a bunch of clergy was coming to do a prayer vigil and I wanted to get arrested with the clergy doing a prayer vigil <laughs> and uh, I, I, I actually felt really good because I think that's the place that I would like to be. I don't want to be saying, calling bad names at this one or the other one because I think I have to call bad names on myself too because I didn't change the world yet and I didn't completely figure out how to do it. I actually don't think that there's anyone who gets up in the morning, I believe this and says, well, I see that the right thing to do is, but mm, I'm really going to wreck up the world. I don't actually believe that. I actually believe everybody is doing what they're doing because they think it's the right thing to do. I have a feeling that confusion and ignorance is the great enemy. And I don't want to make human enemies. I think that the world is so full of human enemies that my job is to not have them. And it's, it's not actually for other people, it's for me. Because I can't rest if I have enemies. If ignorance is the enemy, then I am vowed to end it. And I think that's really the only way I can do that, is to um, notice when I really feel revenge in my heart and notice how unhappy that makes me. I want to change people or teach people. So I hoped that that would be the picture that would be the the equivalent of the 1967 or 8 picture that ended that war. If that wasn't, then I'm sorry to show you this one. Don't look if you don't want to. This is um, in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Amanda Jordan waited yesterday for the coffin of her husband, Sergeant Philip Andrew Jordan of the Marines, who died at Nazaria. The whole life that this particular woman and man had. Most people will come home, I think, but he won't. And there's no way, you know. You look at that woman and you think, I know how that feels. That didn't happen to me ever in that like this life. Yeah. I'm not going to make it worse than it is. I'm going to pass it around. But, you know... that we can do this as human beings in the 21st century on a crowded planet and not all say, wait a minute, way too crowded a planet for us not to get ourselves under control with this. I don't actually think anger, I could be completely wrong, but I don't actually think of that greed, hatred, and delusion. I don't think human beings are fundamentally overrun by hatred. I saw some footage yesterday in the gym of... Uh, um, rallies, anti-American rallies in the street and various other countries in the Middle East. 
a lot of people, a lot of children angry, a lot of women angry, a lot of fist waving. But I don't think people are fundamentally angry. I don't think that that's the main thing. I think greed probably is um, is the biggest desire. I think that is is what I have to. I'm, I I think we're fundamentally friendly. You know, you meet people somewhere and. Uh, you don't know anything about them. You feel friendly towards them, don't you? I mean, you have goodwill towards people. Most people do. You walk along the street. For the most part, most of us feel kindly about people. I think that that desire runs away with us. Greediness. So you know about the rally on Friday. You want to know about what happened there? Um, it was it was um, it was um, it was fine. It was fine. It began with uh, it began with Betsy Rose singing for uh, a half hour. There were upwards of two hundred people uh, on the plaza in front of the federal building. Um, Jack Kornfeld led a, um, a meta meditation for all the children in the world, um, there and here and every place else, uh, in a world that they're going to inherit. <coughs> and um, Alan Solomonoff of the American Friends Service Committee spoke a little bit, and uh, Alan Sanaki of the British Peace Fellowship spoke a little bit. And then uh, representatives, Father Louis Vitali, a Franciscan monk who's 75 years old, I discovered yesterday. 75 years old. Looks like a Franciscan monk should look. A Franciscan monk activist. I would follow him anywhere into any fray. And uh, he spoke eloquently and passionately and with wit and with, with great honor and dignity. He's just gotten out of jail. For th- he's being held for three months in jail for some protest. And uh, there were uh, Protestant ministers, Methodist ministers, Quakers. Presbyterian minister, Methodist minister. There were uh, three rabbis, two men and a woman, spoke passionately. Uh, I spoke. I can tell you what I said, but maybe I'll do it at the end and we'll do it as a reflection, as a prayer at the end. And then Blanche Hartman uh, led the entire group in a recitation of the Metta Sutta. They passed it out in the whole group. And then they explained to people what would happen if you got arrested, that how to get arrested, uh, how to where to go, where to stand, how to that that if you did you needed to agree that you would do it respectfully, politely, peacefully, um, with no disagreeable talk, no violence of any kind, verbal or physical. Um, no use of drugs, intoxicants, no, certainly no invective, um, with respect. That it would probably 
mean a $100 fine and uh, a court date to come back, and that it carried a, uh, uh, it could carry at your court date a sentencing that would uh, require you paying up to $900 as a fine. So to get arrested, to take a chance of getting arrested meant that you were uh, prepared to spend $1,000 to get arrested, to make that point. And that you shouldn't do it if you couldn't afford that, or and you didn't know how long you'd be held either, so you shouldn't do it if you couldn't do that. And so not everybody did it, but some of us did. And, uh, and I did, and Susan did, and... Uh, Jack did, and Donald Rothberg did, and uh, Anne Lamott um, was there, and we all kind of were in a little lump. We did it together. It was very, it was actually, it was wonderful to be all together. And uh, what you did is you went over and you just sat that we sat down on the floor right in front of the federal building. Um, and uh, the police had told us that beforehand what, what to expect, that they have a bullhorn and they say, you are in uh, violation of a federal ordinance blocking a federal building. You have two minutes to disperse. If you don't disperse, we'll need to arrest you. And then they stand there. And somebody started singing, we shall overcome. <laughs> So we sat on the floor, knelt on the floor, many of us, and sang, We Shall Overcome. And it was, it was this piece of the experience I remember very clearly, because I was in the front, and in front of me were all these feet of police people, and uh, with big, heavy police boots, you know, those black police boots with kind of nail-head boots. So all I have in front of me is the vision of police legs and boots. And I had no uh, alarm at all. I was never frightened. And I was, I was noticing that. And I thought about it. I, the next day, I read Donald's paper and, on equanimity, and, and he was reading from uh, not to have hubris about putting myself in the same category with Martin Luther King, but it was actually quoting Martin Luther King saying, "I was very frightened for a while about what I was doing." He said, and "Then something happened, and I absolutely knew I was doing the right thing." At which point, all my fear went away. And I'd like to think that that, that that piece of it, not to put myself in that category, but for that moment, I absolutely felt completely non-conflicted about what I was doing. It was just the right thing to do. It wasn't even brave or wonderful or marvelous. It was just the right thing to do. So I was not the least bit concerned about it. Frightened, I wasn't. A little concerned, you know, how long am I going to sit here, and I don't know if my back will hold up, but... Those are the personal concerns of old women sitting on sidewalks. I, mean, <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't in any larger sense frightened. <laughs> and there's a really big difference. <laughs> and the police were wonderful. They were very kind. At the end of two minutes, they said, "Well, you know, you can disperse now," and we didn't. And then they said, "Well, we're going to have to arrest you now." And I don't know who the first person to get arrested was, and then Alan Sinatra was, and then I was. And the police were very kind. They stand up, and they say to you, you can leave now if you want to. And I get to say, I'm very sorry, I can't do that. And then he gets to say, then you have to turn around, I put on the handcuffs. 
so I do that. But they're, you know, they're very loose handcuffs. They're, I mean, they're not seriously meant to hurt you. They're plastic handcuffs. And, but you are handcuffed. And, you know, it is, it's a different feeling. Because then the police escort you over to where you will now be asked to sit again on the pavement until they can take you inside. So here I am, but I'm sitting on the pavement with friends, you know, so it was fine. But they help you get down, because it's hard to sit down with your hands behind you, and it's hard to get up. They help you up, and they help you down. You want to tell what, how did you feel, Susan? I, well, I was so enjoying it. I mean, it's just amazing. But um, I remember the first time I was in Oh, good, good, because people want to hear, because I, I really felt that, you know, everybody here, regardless, actually, I'm going to take this big flying leap of faith, everybody here, regardless of what your politics are, I think what would have supported us in this action. No one said anything political. The people who preached didn't say anything political. We said, war is not good for children and other living things. Alan Sanaki said, war is hell. And hell is the furthest away from the realm of the spirit of any place on earth. That was really a lovely thing. I mean, it's, it, it's exactly the, it, that is really holding the spiritual place. Not that there aren't things that are wrong in the world that have to get righted. But there has to be another way to do it without killing people. Partly because that's so terrible and partly because that makes more enmity. There are two reasons why that isn't going to work. So we got arrested. We got taken in. We got taken into a big room in the back, small room in the back, 35 people in a room without chairs. So we stood the whole time. And we went around. We said our names. We introduced each other, ourselves to each other. Maybe a third of the folks were clergy, maybe a half. The other half not. Uh, maybe a half said this is the first time I've ever been arrested. Um, if you are not a Jew, you should know that in Judaism there's a particular prayer that you make uh, at the arrival of an occasion that hasn't happened before in your life, uh, expressing gratitude for having lived long enough to do that. So um, Rabbi David Cooper said those who know this prayer, and he recited it in English. Everybody said it in English. And those people who could uh, say it in Hebrew said, that has kept me in life and sustained me and allowed me to uh, reach this day. So it was really thanks for the opportunity to do this. It was really, people came, said, I wanted to get arrested, but only with this group. And then an hour later, they said, uh, you can go home and all the charges are dropped. So we have no records. We have no police records. They took our pictures, but they sent us home. And the policeman who escorted me to the door, who I uh, thanked many times for his really careful treatment of us, I said, you really have done this so well. And he said, well, he said, um, first of all, he said, oh, it was very nice. He said, um, we are federal agents. And it is our job, we feel it is our job to protect your First Amendment right for freedom of expression. 
I thought that was beautiful. And he said, and we are also obligated to uphold the law. So we needed to arrest you. And that's why we do it carefully. I thought it was wonderful. And then he, and I said, uh, uh, and he said something about, uh, I said something, and of course we behaved well as well. I thought I'd say something good about us as well. I said, uh, here we are, a group of people committed to a life of the Spirit. He said, my wife is the Methodist minister of, and he ma- named a particular church. <laughs> so I really had the feeling that we, uh, that we were quite safe all the time. Um, I'll tell you a very sweet one personal reflection about that, and then I'll let Susan tell you that uh, at a family birthday party the day after, um, when all my family was together, I felt really good because I thought I knew my children were proud of me, but I was really happy that my grandchildren were proud of me because I thought I was doing unto them as Martha Brenner did unto me 40 years ago. And I really wanted them to have a grandmother who was prepared to do that as a normal course of events. And uh, uh, they made me a plaque. <laughs> and uh, my friend Hillary here in the back, who is an artist in chocolate, made a pair of chocolate cufflinks <laughs> with my grandson Eric. And so I have chocolate cufflinks at home. Um, so this is actually the grandmother that I wanted to be. And uh, and if my mother were alive, she'd be proud of me. <laughs> so Susan, you tell your thing. Yeah, well, it was my first time in SCC. And my recollection was, I mean, I wasn't intending to be arrested. Uh, and, and my husband and I had an appointment. He just kept putting us in. Actually, this time I had an appointment, too, and he said he could do it. He held my sign. And so, but, uh, I was, like, so moved. Yeah. <laughs> you can't, by the way, go to the bathroom unescorted. The police have to take you to the bathroom. Here we are, two old women. Are we going to make a break for? <laughs>
amazing. I did, thank you very much. For, I forgot about the. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, everybody is a human being. I look at this picture on the. I, I am so blown away by that baby without a mother in Iraq. But I'm blown away about this woman in Connecticut without a husband. And he really meant to. I mean, he's a good person, I'm sure, who's out there like these federal agents, thinking he's protecting me by doing. But he's as dead as that Iraqi girl's mother. That killing people to make your point just seems so. The Dalai Lama last fall, the year before, just after, just after 9/11, in one of those communicates from the Dalai Lama. He said, you know, war is obsolete. War is really obsolete. Would that it were, you know, look what's happening. But he said, sometimes he said, you could justify a war. He said, I guess you could think it over. And you could make such a point that you could justify it in your mind. He said, but if you justified it in your mind, it would be at odds with how your heart was. And then the war would be inside you. Hmm? And I think that it's not possible to look at the pictures in the newspaper on every side and be heartbroken every day. There's two possibilities. Either you're completely heartbroken or you, be, you steal yourself off, you become numb. One of these 12 thing, 10 things that Donald said were the um, near enemies of equanimity, indifference, numbness. You go to the gym and in the middle of someone shooting a war, you go take a shower. Like, how can you do that? You know, that, how can you do anything but stop? There's a really, if I, if I put it back in the context, to end it in the context of Dharma. The Buddha taught, this is an article, which you can, do you have a pencil in your hand? You can download this. Or I'll tell it to Sherry and she'll put it on the uh, on the website. HTTP colon slash slash. It's a long thing. You want it on the website or website. website? Website. This is a thing called uh, a paper by Paul Fleischman, who's a psychiatrist, a teacher of vipassana meditation, a student of S. N. Goenka. He's the author, among other works, of cultivating inner peace. And he wrote a very good article called The Buddha Taught Nonviolence, Not Pacifism. And it's a really important difference because sometimes the sense is if I don't take a stand, then anyone will walk all over and do anything. The Buddha was very clear about you take a stand. There are things that are wholesome and things that are not wholesome. And you take a stand about what is not wholesome. But the difference between taking a stand and figuring out what is the stand that I can take that does not wreak more violence on the world. What is the stand that I can take that is going to make a difference? <coughs> I, I, I started what I said at that rally with, I am an activist on behalf of peace. It's not everything goes and it's all the winds of karma blowing back and forth. It is taking a stand, speaking up, voting, teaching. I really want us to start up the Spirit Rockies to have a... Um, uh, a once-a-month course called, um, oh, wait a minute, uh, what was it called? 
no, it wasn't political awareness or spiritual practice, social consciousness or spiritual practice, something like that. But people came and spoke about political and social issues in the world. And both sides of issues came and talked. Because it seems to me that that really is a part of a religious life. I cannot say I'm going to hide in Salt Spring Island. You know, however interesting that fantasy is, I think to myself, I'd like to go somewhere on a desert island for 10 years and say, wake me when it's over. I have to take my immediate family, so that's 24 people. And then I have to take my, my best friends, so that's a whole lot of people. Then I'd have to take all of you, so we'd have to have a big island. <laughs> so the bottom line is I can't go anywhere. I have to stay here. <laughs> So that's it. So stuck here, I have to do the, uh, and I can't fall asleep. I have to read the paper and look at it and keep on talking because it is the only antidote here. So I won't read you all of this because I see it's coming on 11 o'clock, but yes, here it is. I started it. HTTP colon slash slash www.dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A dot org slash IJ slash archives slash two zero zero two A slash nonviolence dot htm. If you didn't get it, come and find it afterwards. I'll leave it right over here. Come and find it afterwards. It is a very, very good seven page teaching on what the Buddha said. Last two minutes. I want to read what Thomas Merton someone sent me Thomas Merton yesterday. It's always very good to fall back on Thomas Merton, lifts up the heart, really. Thomas Merton, the late Catholic mystic, discussed the journey into hopelessness. In a letter to a friend, he advised, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no results at all, if not perhaps results opposite to what you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You gradually struggle less and less for an idea and more and more for specific people. In the end, it is the reality of personal relationship that saves everything. I don't know, but I'm happy to put it on the website. I give this to Sherry, who will put it on the website. There you go. I quit. You can't. I can't go to Salt Spring and you can't quit. <laughs> we are all in this for the duration. <laughs> Every, everybody will now applaud Sherry. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Yay. Please. Okay, there you go. Okay, Sherry will say. Wait, wait, wait. I tell you what. What it, you want to tell the website? Very briefly, it's not a website. It's a Yahoo um, mailing group, and it does have a calendar. Whatever. But if you join, you can email me, and I'll sign you up. And you can send a message to everybody in the folder with information. So if you have any questions, just email Sherry Langhorn at Yahoo.com. Ella. Ella. S-H-E-R-R-Y-R-E-I-N-H-A-R-D-T. Thank you. 
Wednesday calendar at yahoofood.com. You don't even have to go to the site. You can send a message to everybody. So I want to tell you one more thing, Miriam. I am going to read the speech, and I'm happy to tell you that the speech is getting printed in the next. Uh, it got invited to be printed in the next issue of the Shambhala Sun, not the one that's just come out, but the one that's coming out in the end of May, uh, along with an article by Thich Nhat Hanh on peace. So I'm very happy about that. I think we're just going to start, keep on talking about the possibility. That's probably this. You know, we're just going to do this because when people say to me, really, if I, this is, this is, what we did together was the long answer. The long answer all boils down to, I am trying to keep at least my heart a hate-free zone. Uh, I am trying to keep all the enemies off my enemy list. I am having to try very hard uh, because it is so easy to get mad. I get mad when I get frightened. I get frightened when I get outraged. I, actually, I get outraged when I get frightened because I look and I say things are going out of control. I am afraid. What kind of a world are my grandchildren growing up into? And then I get frightened and then I get outraged and then I get angry and then I get vindictive and then I think mean thoughts and then I feel sick. And I don't want to do that. It's not good for me and it's not good for the world. And I really need you uh, to be here with me to do this. Uh, you know, when people, that's a longer answer. What we did together was a longer answer. And when people ask me, the most common answer I give when people say, what are you doing to keep yourself going these days? As I say, and I mean it with great sincerity, I talk to my friends. If there are two other people in the world that want to hear what I have to say, and I want to hear what they have to say, and they sound like me, any people, person in the post office, if, they, if he says to me, uh, have a good day, and I say, I'm having as good a day as I can, given the state of the world, and he said, you said it, isn't this awful? We have to do something. My day is redeemed for the next X number of minutes, really. That I need somebody else to say, this is, we can do it another way. If one other person believes it, then we'll put out the word. I can't be there Friday. I'll be there Saturday in Oakland. I'll be the Saturday in Oakland. Come to Oakland. Uh, it's not a. It's not an interface. It's another kind of a thing. But you know, I. I I'm fairly sure I'll be in Oakland. Maybe this could be. Um, this is what I said at the end of the rally the other day. Do you want to hear it? I consider myself an activist on behalf of peace. I have faith in the fundamental compassion of human beings and also a conviction that the wrongs and the wrongdoers of the world can be confronted and addressed without violent means. I believe that all the faith traditions of the world recognize the sacredness and preciousness of life as their core teaching, and that they teach non-harming forbearance and generosity as their primary instruction. I trust that human beings, when they are not confused, are kind and spontaneously friendly. 
I see that in the way that young children behave with one another and in the way that older children express concern. I'm a Buddhist teacher and I'm also a grandmother. I have seven grandchildren. My youngest grandchild is three years old. And day before yesterday, as I watched her play at a local science museum, happily sharing and taking turns with a diverse group of three-year-olds, I thought with great sadness, she has no idea of the fear-filled, violent world she is inheriting. And my oldest grandchild is almost 16. And last week I walked with him and his mother, who is my daughter, and a large group of students from his school to a rallying point in San Rafael where they joined with students from other high schools to hear speeches on behalf of a peaceful resolution of this current world crisis. The walk was peaceful and respectful, and they chanted, send books, not bombs. And in spite of the pain I felt because bombing had begun the night before, I felt reassured that these young people who will soon be old enough to be eligible to fight in wars are aware that establishing peace in the world requires taking care of people, not killing them. I'm a grandmother who is also the granddaughter of people who came to the United States because they believed passionately that this was a democracy based on goodness and righteousness, and that the government could be counted on to enact the will of the people rather than impose its will on the people. My grandparents were seeking refuge for, from inhumane regimes. I grew up trusting the fundamental ideals of international justice that living in a democracy promised. I have voted in every single election at every level of government since I was old enough to, do, to vote. And I am still trusting that the people of this country who believe, as I do, that our government is subject to the rule of international law will insist that this country live up to its promises of democracy. I love this country, and I feel it is my patriotic duty to ask that our sons and daughters be brought home immediately and safely so that they can live long, healthy, productive, loving lives, and so that our country can regain its status of respect in the world. I speak to you today as a religious person and as a Buddhist teacher, and so I will use the Buddha's words to end my message. Violence is never ended by violence. Only by goodwill is violence ended. This is the eternal law. May it happen soon that goodwill and peace prevail in the world. I think that's the only thing that we can keep on saying that what we are doing is unnatural. This is not what human beings are supposed to do. We have gotten collectively confused. We just have not figured out yet how to unconfuse ourselves. Figured out how to fly rockets to the moon. How to do heart-lung transplants. How to do amazing things. Figured out how to write poetry. Figured out how to write music. Figured out how to play it. I think about music a lot. If you got a musician who had been trained and had music lessons in any country of the world and put them all together in an orchestra, we would not need to speak the same language. When you open the music, they could all play the same Haydn sonata. 
They're just quiet. They don't have to be able to speak to each other. They can have different religious persuasions. They can have different politics. They don't have to understand the same language. They can just all read the music. There is a way that we could write some new music by listening. We do all speak. We all have hearts. Anybody in the world looks at that picture of a soldier holding a baby whose mother has just died, feels the same. Everybody feels the same, men and women. We don't have better hearts or worse hearts than anybody else. Anybody sees that picture of the woman waiting for the coffin to come off that plane, feels the same as seeing the pictures of Palestinians burying children, burying grown-ups, Israelis burying people, anyone burying anyone anywhere for whatever reason is bereft. Death for whatever reason is a terrible tragedy in people's personal lives. The line on the Dhammapada that says, anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. And you realize that life is really precious. It doesn't last forever. We are separated from whatever and whoever we love, sooner or later, in the best of circumstances and in the best of health. The least we could do is make sure it happens in the best of circumstances and in the best of health. We won't live forever, any of us. People who love us will have to do without us. And we will, for various reasons, not man-made, person-made, lose people who are dear to us. People will still drown. People will still get hit by automobiles. People will still get illnesses. And they'll die. But maybe we could keep it just to that and not kill each other. Not kill each other. Not take what isn't ours. Fundamentally, those precepts stay at say it all. We have a whole confused world. But it could be otherwise. It does me a lot of good to be here. I feel better. So I hope you do. I hope it lasts a little bit. And we just think of each other in between and we come back together. I wish you a week of peace in your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.